You are listening to Gangland Wire, hosted by former Kansas City Police Intelligence Unit Detective Gary Jenkins. Hello, all you wiretappers out there. I have a special treat. You know, we've been talking about Chuck Cromaldi, and I got hold of a guy named Dan Moldia, who is an expert on the Hoffa disappearance, and he had interviewed Chuck Cromaldi about that and what he knew about that. Now, he has an interesting theory that uh, Cromaldi gave him that partly is true and partly isn't true, more than likely. Like a lot of these mob guys, and they tell you a story if it's too good to be true, it probably is. But I think there's some truth to what uh, our friend uh, Charles Chucky Cromaldi told Dan Moldea. You may have heard of him. Mainly what you're going to hear is a story about uh, who killed Jimmy Hoffa and where his body is. So I know there's a huge controversy, but you just sit back and, and listen to Dan Moldea tell his story about where Jimmy Hoffa's body is currently and uh, how chucky cromaldi from chicago got his two cents worth in this my interest is in the hoffa case and um and that's how i came to um chuck cromaldi i had i had been writing a book called the hoffa wars beginning in 19 19- 74 when I started investigating the Teamsters Union and then about eight months into my investigation Hoffa disappeared in July 1975. I was 25 years old at the time. I was a grad student at Kent State in Ohio and um, so when Hoffa disappeared I hit the ground running. So I spent four years investigating the Hoffa disappearance and writing my book The Hoffa Wars which came out in 1978. Now in my opinion the key moment uh, and the Hoffa case came in December of 1975 when there was a grand jury in Detroit. And the focus of the grand jury was on the statements of a guy named Ralph Picardo. And Ralph Picardo had received information that, um, that Hoffa had been murdered in Detroit that, uh, and that the conspirators were the uh, Andretta brothers and the Bergoglio brothers, Sal and Gabe Bergoglio, Steve and Tom Andretta. And that uh, Hoffa's body had been stuffed into a 55-gallon drum, loaded onto a gateway transportation truck, and shipped to New Jersey. And when they asked him to speculate as to who killed Hoffa, and, and the reason why he knew this is that one of the co-conspirators, uh, Steve Andretta, had come and visited him in prison and gave him some of these details about the case. So when they said to him, uh, and all of these guys were associates of Tony Provenzano, uh, who was the labor racketeer from uh, Union City, New Jersey, local 560. He was one of the three people Hoffa was supposed to meet on the day he disappeared. It was Tony Provenzano, Tony Giacalone, who was related to Provenzano through marriage and a labor racketeer named Lenny Schultz. when they said to him, who, who did he, uh, Andretta say killed Hoffa? And he said, uh, he, 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 he didn't tell me, but I know from being around the Provenzano people that, that the person who had the contract to kill Hoffa was Sal Bergoglio. And so um, they said, did he say, when they took him on a gateway truck back to New Jersey, did they say where they took him? And he said, no. But I know as a, you know, from being around the Provenzano people, 
and being Tony's driver for a period of time, that when we murdered somebody, they would wind up in Brother Moscato's dump, which was a landfill in uh, Jersey City, New Jersey, under the Pulaski Skyway, the bridge that connects Jersey City and New York, Newark. So I believed that that was the firewall of the Hoffa case. And again, this came, that grand jury was in December of 1975, and the FBI had uh, obtained a search warrant saying that uh, going to Brother Moscato's dump and trying to find Hoffa's body, uh, ostensibly that they were looking for this lone shark named Armand Fogno, but in fact, they were looking for Hoffa. But it was a 54-acre toxic waste dump with quicksand and wild dogs and rats and toxic waste to replace. They had no idea where to look. And so that ended no that, that ended in nowheresville, but that was the FBI's first position as to where Hoffa's body was. And it was 650 miles away from the murder, the scene of the murder, in this dump site in Jersey City, New Jersey. So once again, I believe that this was the 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 um, the firewall of the case. So I went out and I interviewed uh, Hoffa's killers, um, uh, the Bergulios and the Adretas. I had the only interview with them. We talked about Moscato stuff. We talked about all these other things. And meantime, in 1978, I published my book, The Hoffa Wars. But I had been I had been following a track, which I had been led on by Ed Parton, and Ed Parton was the key government witness against Hoffa in his 1964 jury, tra- jury, uh, jury tampering trial in Chattanooga. And Ed Parton had convinced me that Hoffa was of the liaison between the CIA and the mafia in the Castro assassination plots because of all of, all of Hoffa's contacts all over the Caribbean. And we knew as a fact that Hoffa had been working with five mob guys um, who were um, had lost an enormous amount of money after Castro had taken over the island. And all five of these guys, Russell Buffalino from northeastern Pennsylvania, uh, Jimmy Plumeri, um, John La- uh, uh, um, Salvador Granello, two capos in the, in the Lucchese crime family, and then the boss of the Pittsburgh Mafia, a guy named John LaRocca, and uh, his underboss, Gabriel Manorino. So those five guys, uh, Buffalino, Brunello, Plumeri, LaRocca, and Manorino were part of the guys who Hoffa had been linked to in this effort to get this money back uh, from after Castro had had overthrown Batista in the uh, in the in the Cuban Revolution. So I was hooked up with a uh, with a DEA a former DEA agent named John Kidner, and John Kidner had written this fascinating book called Contract Killer. And the, the book was about the life and times of this um, Chicago underworld figure named uh, Chuck Cromaldi, Charles Cromaldi. And um, I talked to John, and John um, offered to introduce me to Cromaldi, who I apparently was in the WITSEC program and was certainly was a protected witness at that time, but was testifying against De Stefano or whomever else he was dealing with. In, in Chicago, and the the deal was is that I had to, um, I, I never I never I didn't meet Cremoni in person, and the, my instructions were, and it was Kidner who who did all this was that I had to go to a certain there was a building on 17th Street, and there was a payphone on the side of the building there right at the entrance, 
and I was instructed to go there and to wait for a call. So I knew they were watching me from someplace. And so the uh, phone rang, I answered it, and, um, and I had my interview with, with Chuck Cromaldi, who told me, as he had said in his book, in, in Kidner's book, he said that Hoffa was involved in the CIA mafia plots to kill Castro. He said that um, the same people who had um, killed Hoffa were also behind the murders of Sam Giancana a month earlier and Johnny Roselli a year later. Um, he told me that uh, Hoffa had been um, crushed and smelted. He said that, that he, after the murder, he had been taken someplace where he was crushed and smelted. So, and Cromaldi, I, I didn't sense that he had firsthand knowledge of this, and I couldn't imagine who he was talking to, but the, the, the information that's always put the hook in me for 46 years ago that I have kept, uh, that's kept me in this case for 46 years is the fact that I believe that if you solve the violence in Teamsters Local 299 um, and who was behind it, you will then solve the Hoffa disappearance. Uh, there were these acts of violence going on against Hoffa supporters at Local 299, George Roxborough, Dave Johnson, Jim, Jim Levitt. Uh, there were a whole slew of uh, uh, Tom Gwilt. There were a whole bunch of these guys who were supporting Hoffa and there were violent acts against them. And one of my one of my earliest contributions to the Hoffa case was that I discovered who was behind those acts of violence, and the guy's name was Roland McMaster. And when I worked uh, after Hoffa disappeared, um, I did a brief stint with the Wall Street Journal. And again, I'm a kid; I'm 25 years old, but I've got eight months of experience of investigating Hoffa and the Teamsters. And then I went with NBC News, and it was my first day in a job with NBC. Um, right after it was announced that Hoff had disappeared, when I received this information about Roland McMaster and this goon squad that he had that was running around shaking down trucking companies, but that they were also behind the violence at Hoffa's local before he disappeared. NBC didn't want to spend a whole lot of money on this, and they thought it was a little far-fetched because people thought it was a little mob, more mobby than that, than it was Roland McMaster, who was a teamster tough. He was not a, 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 a he was behind Hoffa from the very beginning, and then they had a huge falling out after Hoffa went to jail in 1967. McMaster wanted to control local 299, Hoffa's home local, and Hoffa resisted. He didn't want to give McMaster the job, and that caused a huge falling out between the two of them, where they became mortal enemies. And then it was, and then when Hoffa was released from prison in 1971 via the commutation from Nixon, and he was trying to regain his job as 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 president of the Teamsters Union. It was McMaster who was doing these acts of violence against his top supporters, trying to interrupt his plans to regain the team's presidency because they wanted Franklin Simmons, Hoffa's handpicked successor, with whom he also had a falling out after he went to jail. They wanted to keep him in. So um, <clears throat> on the day uh, I, after I left NBC, I put together a 15-page uh, theory as to what happened to Hoffa. Again, saying that if you if you know who, who was behind the violence in the Hoffa's local, which which went right up to 20 days before Hoffa disappeared on July 10th, 1975. Hoffa disappeared 20 days later on July 30th. Then you can figure out who solved the, solved the murder. 
and I had been told that Roland McMaster was involved in the disposal of Hoffa's body. So um, I, I turned my I turned in a 15-page theory to the FBI after I after I left NBC, and I was contacted by a couple of FBI guys. They came and visited me in my home at, in Ohio, and um, and I told them about the McMaster Goon Squad and about the information I had about this about this uh, the, the, these these uh, violent acts against pro Hoffa supporters in local 299. And, um, and so the FBI guys encouraged me to come back to Detroit, which is where I was doing my Wall Street Journal thing, which was where I was doing my um, NBC thing. And so I did. I went back. I was introduced to Jimmy Hoffa Jr. And um, and I wound up at the Detroit Free Press doing a story about the goon squad. And that's where I was when the grand jury uh, did its investigation. I was disappointed when it was the, the, the Bergoglios and they were said, oh, the, the, the four, um, the four uh, killers of Jimmy Hoff, alleged killers of Jimmy Hoff are going to be at the grand jury tomorrow. And, um, and so, uh, and I was disappointed that McMaster wasn't one of them. And then my my editor came up to me during the grand jury hearing and he said, the, there's a mystery fifth guy there. And he, and he had a big smile on his face. And I just, I just took off out of the newsroom, ran down the steps, went over to the Florida courthouse. And there was Roland McMaster, the guy who I had pinned all of this thing on. So a couple of days later, an FBI guy offered to um, take me to lunch. So we went to some greasy spoon in downtown Detroit and he asked me if I had some time. He wanted to give me a ride. He wanted to show me some of the sites. So I said, of course. And so uh, we went around and he told me that Ron McMaster's alibi for the day Hoffa disappeared was that he was with his brother-in-law. And his brother-in-law, Stan Barr, was the head of Gateway Transportation. This is the same Gateway Transportation trucking company that Ralph Picardo said during when he flipped and became a, a, a federal witness for the FBI, that Hoffa's bought half had been murdered in Detroit, placed into a 55-gallon drum, loaded onto a gateway transportation truck, and shipped to New Jersey. So that's what's put the hook in me for 46 years is the McMaster gateway connection with Stan Barr. So in 2006, there was uh, an FBI dig. And I've, I've followed all of these things over the past 46 years, and all of them have been righteous. Uh, the timeline was right somehow, or the cast of characters was right. And to me, the FBI, they had their eye on the ball through this whole thing, and this was justified what they had done. Despite the grief they take on these things, there are legitimate reasons why they do these things. And I think that ultimately, uh, they are going to be uh, vindicated, and I think I'm going to help that to happen. Um, but... What had happened was they they had dropped a search warrant on a farm in Wixom, Michigan, and the farm was owned by Roland McMaster. Uh, you may remember this when they tore down a barn, and they were looking for Hoffa's body under the barn, and then they had to rebuild the barn and everything else, and it was very controversial, and the FBI took a lot of grief for it, but the source on that was outstanding. The source was a guy named Don Wells, and Don Wells... Uh, when I went to go see Don Wells, he showed me the map that he gave. Don was in prison at the time down in Lexington, Kentucky. 
And the FBI, my only criticism of the FBI is they didn't let him out of jail and bring him up to Detroit to show the spots that he was looking at on this farm because Don and his wife lived on that farm with Roland McMaster and his wife. It was Roland McMaster's farm. So uh, Don says, and Don's big news was that not what happened on the day of the murder, but what happened the night before. The night before the murder, he was having dinner with Stan Barr, the head of Gateway Transportation, and Roland McMaster. And during their dinner, Tony Provenzano, the labor racketeer from New Jersey, one of the three people Hoffa was supposed to meet the following day at the Red Fox restaurant, came up to the table and he slapped his hand on the table and he said, it's going to be a great day tomorrow. It's going to be a great day. And he says, Matt, can I talk to you for a second privately? So McMaster gets up and he and Provenzano walk over to the bar and have a private conversation. And Don says to Stan Barr, the head of Gateway, what's going on tomorrow? And he says, oh, Provenzano and, and Hoff are supposed to meet and, and patch things up. He goes, okay. So McMaster and Provenzano come back. McMaster sits down and Provenzano points at Barr and, and uh, McMaster and he says, you know where you two guys are going to be tomorrow, right? And, and, and McMaster says, yeah, we're all straight on that. And so on the day of the murder, um, Don's wife was Monica. His wife, Monica, was at the farm, in the farmhouse. And at about mid-afternoon, she saw two or three cars come flying up Pontiac Trail make a hard right onto the farm, go up the dirt road to the back end of the farm. And um, again, this is the information that put the hook in me. The FBI didn't find Hoffa's body there, but they insisted in their, in their statement on their way out that Hoffa was there at this, at this location. There was a guy named Scott Bernstein, a very fine reporter in Detroit, who um, probably is the world's expert on the Detroit mob, at least a civilian expert on the mob. And he had information that, that Hoffa was picked up and taken to the home of Lenny Schultz, who was a labor racketeer, the third person who Hoffa was supposed to meet that day, that Hoffa was murdered at Lenny Schultz's house, that Hoffa's body was then turned over to Roland McMaster. That's the information Scotty had, where we believe that Hoffa's body was then taken to the farm where he was stuffed into a 55-gallon drum, loaded onto a gateway transportation truck, and shipped to New Jersey. At that point, I had, after I wrote in my book, I had embraced the Chuck Cromaldi version of what happened to Hoffa, that Hoffa had been crushed and smelted, because I had, I had Ed Parton, Again, my source who started me off on this whole thing, saying that he had had a conversation with one of the principals in the Hoffa case, one of the top suspects, who said that Hoffa had been crushed and smelted, that he was now a hubcap or a fender, which smacked to the smelting process because Gateway's uh, steel division is right next to the Ford River Rouge plant in Dearborn, which is, you know, where they, where, where the Ford River Rouge plant, where they, crush and smelt tons and tons of, of steel every day. So I had believed, I believed that Chuck was wrong. And here I am admonishing everybody, listen, Ralph Picardo is our firewall here. 
And what I ended up doing is I ended up believing Hoffa's murdered in Detroit, stuffed into a 55-gallon truck, loaded onto a gateway transportation truck. But instead of following us up that Hoffa goes to New Jersey, which I found is ridiculous, why send the guy 650 miles away when there's you know, a million places you can dispose of a body right really? there. It's an extra risk that you don't need to take in that transportation. I mean, a guy has a wreck or something. I mean, some unexpected thing. An airplane lands on top of it, you know, crashes. So I assumed that the, I assumed that the, the Gateway truck and the 55-gallon truck wound up at Gateway's terminal and, and Dearborn, and that they just moved it over to the Ford River Rouge plant where they crushed and smelled it, and it was, and the body was gone, like probably within hours after the murder. Then in 2007, I, I was investigating a crooked judge down in Florida, and he was a mobbed-up guy, and he was getting payoffs from some mafia guys. And the the mafia guy who was making the payoffs to him um, was a guy named Philip Brother Moscato. And brother Philip Moscato owned the dump in Jersey City that Picardo said that Hoffa's body was. It was it was called Brother Moscato's dump, but the official name of it was PJP Landfill, and it was owned by Phil Moscato and by his partner Paul Capola. So, in 2007, when I find out that Moscato is making payoffs to uh, this crooked judge. Uh, he was a federal judge who was impeached. Uh, and then he, then he spent 16 years in Congress. His name was Alcee Hastings. And so, um, so I, I went to Moscato. I went to the soldier in the Vito Genovese crime family, and I asked him if he would talk to me about Alcee Hastings. And he said, sure. So I drove up to New Jersey. I went to his home. He invited me to his home. I went up, turned the tape recorder on, and we talked about Elsie Hastings and what clearly was a payoff situation to him. I mean, he was talking about his great friend and, oh, yeah, there was some money there and there. And, you know, I, and, and I said, you know, the first time I ever heard of you was during the Hoffa case. And uh, because, you know, Ralph Picardo said that the Hoffa's body wound up at Brother Moscato's dump. And he goes, yeah, I was at the grand jury that day. I said, you were? I said, well, how did you, you take the fifth like everybody else? He says, of course. Uh, Moscato would give me information with the frequency that a kosher butcher sells pork chops. But what he did do over the next seven years, I stayed in touch with him for seven years. And during that seven-year period of time, what I believe to be Hoffa's murder, a seven, a three-act drama with different characters in each act, was that in Act 1, Hoffa was picked up by Vito Giacalone, uh, who was the brother of Tony Giacalone, one of the three guys Hoffa was supposed to meet that day that in act two, that it was in fact Sal Bergoglio who did the murder. And then in act three, Hoffa's body was stuffed into a 55 gallon truck, was, was uh, uh, loaded onto a gateway transportation truck and shipped to New Jersey where it was buried at his brother Moscato's dump. He told me that. So I told Moscato, I had recorded interviews with him and I told him I wouldn't do anything with him until after he was gone. He was very sick. And in February 2014, seven years after I started interviewing him, he died. So I came out with the story about what Moscato told me, including the body is at the dump. I didn't know where, but it, you know, I was in the same place the FBI was in December 1975, where I got a 54-acre dump. Where is it? 
and so I published that story for the 40th anniversary of Hoffa's murder. And, um, and then four years later, I was introduced to the oldest son of his late partner, Paul Coppola, at the dub. And Frank Coppola told me that he knew the exact location of Papa's body. So I interviewed him about six times in September of 2019. And I said, we have to meet. And so I, he lived in Florida. I, I paid for him to come up to New Jersey. We met in, in, in uh, Secaucus. We had dinner there on September 28th, Saturday, September 28th. And he said, you know, I'm going to go to the dump tomorrow. You know, I used to do when my dad, you know, owned it, would co-owned it with uh, Phil Moscato. I used to do, you know, common labor work there, pick up some extra money for the weekends. And he said that um, uh, he remembers his dad digging a hole. And he remembers exactly where the hole was. And so uh, then on his deathbed, on his father's deathbed, his father said, listen, I'm the guy who buried Jimmy Hoffa's body. And he said that he had put Hoffa's body in a, and uh, he had put Hoffa's body in, in the 55-gallon drums, put it at the bottom of a 15-foot hole, put 15 to 30 steel drums on top of it, you know, got a bulldozer and, you know, smoothed it all out, filled it all in, smoothed it all, all out. And there it sat for all those years. So uh, he said, I'm going to go to the dump tomorrow. I said, hey, you're taking me with you. And he said, you want to go? Sure. So he picks me up at my hotel. We go to the dump. And he gives me a 45-minute tour of the dump. I got a body camera on here. I got a hand camera here. And he takes me to, to the exact location of Hoffa's body. It's a 60 by 60 foot by 60 foot by 60 foot area under the bridge. And I said, you know, this is, it's like the size of a little league baseball diamond. And I said, can you show me, do you remember like an exact location? And he said, I, if I had to make an educated guess, it would be, I got him on film doing it. It'd be right here, right here. So, Frank died on uh, March 16, 2020, just as a pandemic was kicking up. And so the only person Paul Coppola had told where the body was, he never even told Phil Moscato. The only person he told was his oldest son, Frank, who was uh, sort of a fringe organized crime figure himself. And the only person he told was me. So I had this information. And so I had, um, and so we, a friend of mine and I, we got a uh, range for ground penetrating radar on that location. And we started where he said, where Frank said here, this is my educated guess. And we found the, the ground radar professionals found a 12 by 15 foot area filled with steel drums. So I, I had already been cooperating with law enforcement community at this point. And I have been, I have been cooperative. I've given him all the information I have. You know how the game is played. Uh, you know, I'm a journalist, which means I give, I get nothing. I'm, you know, I'm on the one way street here, but I get that just, they have their way of doing things and, and they want to control the science on this thing. And they've been very, very, very nice and everything else. I think they're very excited about this. The FBI has got their hands filled right now. 
transport with all these other investigations with the uh, insurrection here in Washington and with, with uh, you know, the cyber security problems and everything. And, uh, and especially in Michigan, where the militias are very, very active and nefarious. And so they are, you know, they are, they are dealing with 21st century problems as opposed to helping me solve a 20th century unsolved mystery. And, but they are, they are going to get to it. I'm sure they are. But my point is, is that for years from, from after I talked to Cromaldi and I think it was 1977 to 2007, which is 30 years, uh, I believe that Hoffa's body was crushed and snotted. If you hear my lectures, uh, if you see uh, shows about me before that, I say Brother Moscato's dumb. But then after I talked to Phil Moscato, he told me the body was at his dump. And then particularly after Frank Capola takes me to the dump and shows me, I, I then pushed all my chips in for that the body is there at Moscato's dump. I mean, the, the, the good guys have asked me, you know, Dan, what do you think? What, what's your percentage here? I said, I'm at 100%. It's there. Because I can't see them. It, it, it would have been such. For one thing, those barrels were filled with adhesives. And you crack that ground, and God knows what's going to happen after 46 years, what kind of shape those barrels are in. You know, there could be an explosion. And remember, this thing's right underneath the bridge. There could be toxic gas come out of the ground or something when they crack it from all this stuff, and, and people can get hurt. So there's an added level of responsibility here to do it right. But my point is, is that, I believe Chucky e. Cromaldi about the CIA Mafia Plastico Castro, which I think in the end was one of the reasons why Hoffa was murdered. I think Hoffa saw that he was closed out institutionally from returning as president of the Teamsters Union. And even if he was able to overturn the commutation restrictions that he be forbidden to return to union office until 1980 when he would be, what, 70 years old. I think that, I think that that the Roland McMaster goon squad and their efforts to up upend everything with the violence in local 299. I think that gave Frank Fitzsimmons, who was elected in his own right as president of the Teachers Union in 1971 and was looking to be reelected in 1976, that would have given him, if Hoffa would have gotten over the commutation restriction and taken over a, uh, a position in local 299, which would have made him eligible for general vice general president of the union at the at the convention in 76 that uh Hoffa, seeing that he was closed out decided to start talking he was talking to grand juries he was talking to uh reporters he was talking to congressional committees ed parton told me that he was feeding information to the church committee about what was going on with regard to the CIA mafia plots. Again, the guy who was saying this, it was Ed Parton, who was my source. Uh, and, and the reason why I believed Ed is because I was introduced to him by my mentor, Walter Sheridan, who was Bobby Kennedy's right-hand man, both during the Senate Rackets Committee and while Bobby Kennedy was Attorney General. Uh, I mean, Bobby Kennedy, to me, is the greatest crime fighter this country's ever had. He, he was eating mob guys for breakfast back when he was head of the Senate Rackets Committee. And when he became attorney general, he started eating him for lunch and dinner, too. This guy was relentless on going after mob guys and all this nonsense that the Kennedys were mobbed up. and You know, nonsense. Ridiculous. Never happened. 
the Kennedys were the were the were the ferocious enemies of mafia guys, and um, and so uh, I believed that Hoffa was involved in the CIA mafia plots to kill Castro, and I believed that uh, that he was feeding information about that, which is why I think he was killed. Uh, with regard, so I, I embrace Chucky Chucky Cromaldi on that. Uh, with regard to the uh, to the final de destination of Hoffa's body, uh, you know, again, I went with Cromaldi for 30 years on this, from, two, from 1977 to 2007. But Moscato convinced me that the body was at the dump, and now Frank Capola has shown me where it is, and the GPR uh, has confirmed where that there are steel drums where he said there are steel drums. And also, the, the, Paul Coppola decided to bur uh, bury the body off-site, off-site from the dump. The body's buried mm -hmm. under the bridge, which means it's controlled by the state, by the state's Department of Transportation. There shouldn't be any drums or garbage or trash. Anything should be buried under there. It's not part of the dump. And so uh, that's, you know, I, and, and so I admire and respect Chuck Cromaldi. I grieve his death. Um, I didn't know he was still alive. I, frankly, I would have tried to reach out to him. I think after Kidner died, there was just no, there was no, I had no way to get to him. And, um, and I forget when Kidner died. I think I tried to get a hold of Cromaldi sometime later on. But again, my one conversation with him, and it was spectacular, it was while I was on, on the telephone, which was on the side of a building, on, I think it was on 17th Street in Washington, D.C. And I knew they were watching. I, I just, I, I, I mean, they knew when I was there to make the call and they saw me pick up the phone. And, um, and so I, uh, so that was my, that was my interview with Chuck Lamar, who I, who I, uh, who I liked and respected. He was, as you said earlier, you know, he was, he was, uh, he was a smart guy. And, you know, this guy was no knuckle dragger. This guy was in fact a, a very smart and, even articulate guy in his own way. He he was a cut, he was a cut above as best I could tell. You know, I thinking back that he he could have been privy to that information uh, through Giancana and Chicago about the uh, the CIA plots. There's no doubt that 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 has pretty well been proven out. As far as you know, on down the road, what happened to him? I guess he. He would have had to pick that up as secondhand knowledge, as, as far as I can tell. From his position in Chicago, he was a leg breaker and, and a hitman for a loan shark named uh, Mad Sam DiStefano. But as far as those kind of higher level things, it doesn't seem like he was involved with that. He no. he, he was I a different sort of a guy. You just never know about these guys like that. They they're you know they're brighter than the average cat, and they get around and they remember stuff. So, so I, I think he was he was a guy who would pick this stuff up. And again, I he was persuasive to me. And like I said, I I I admonish people who departed from the Ralph Picardo version of events saying that this is, Ralph Picardo's a firewall. We've got to stay faithful to Ralph Picardo's story if we're going to solve this case. And then I broke my own rule by accepting uh, Ralph's story that Hoffa was Neutroid, stuffed into a 55-gallon drum and loaded onto a gateway transportation truck. But instead of going with Chuck that Hoffa was brought back in New Jersey, which I thought was ridiculous. And, and you know what? Here's what, here's what uh, Phil Moscato told me. Bill Moscato told me that they wanted they wanted the body. And basically, he told me that the body they viewed the body as a bargaining chip. Yeah. 
that if somebody got um, indicted for something, can I get a deal? What do you got to bargain with? I can give you Jimmy Hoffa's body. And they would, that, that's a deal maker. That's right a there. pretty good deal. And I, know, yeah. and I know as a fact, I know as a fact that at least one mob guy tried to negotiate a deal in return for Jimmy Hoffa's body. And I wasn't told that by some mob guy. I was told that by an FBI. Yeah. <laughs> and so, um, but the fact is he didn't know. The only person who knew where he buried the body was Paul Coppola. The only person Paul told was Frank. And the only person Frank told was me. So, uh, and then I, 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 the information I had was, it could have come out from someplace else. It, there was another person who had some information about this. So in order to stake my claim to be the one and only person who knew this, that's when I revealed the exact location. Yeah. And um, so I have kind of owned this theory right now. So I'm writing high right now, <laughs> as long as I'm right. If I'm wrong, everyone's going to dance on my head. Yeah, they will. Had, yeah, that's how it is. I had, I, had a, I, had a, I, had a, I had a moment with Robert De Niro. I've hosted an author's dinner group here in Washington for published authors for 33 years. And, uh, you know, I've had a couple of hundred, two, three hundred authors run, you know, be members of my uh, group at one time or another during these past 33 years. And one of the people who came was Robert De Niro. And Robert De Niro was in the midst of uh, production for The Irishman, which is this this very fine movie, great yeah, cinema, yeah. but horrible history. Yeah. Horrible history. <laughs> And um, and I wanted to, and and Niro wanted to meet me because he knew I was there. He knew I was bitching about Frank. Yeah. Schoen. And um, and so I uh, so De Niro and I had about twenty minutes together. And if I had more time, I would have taken it. But I sort of had to get to the point. I told the guy, you know, as nice as he was to all the other authors and everything else, I told him that you know he was getting conned by Frank Sheeran, that Frank Sheeran did not murder Jimmy Hoff. And that, um, and that um, he was uh, being misled, and he really got his backup about. Oh, that. really? And yeah. It, oh, yeah. He said, "No, this is the real story." I mean, even Scorsese, after the movie came out, said, "And I don't know Scorsese. Uh, never met him." But even he said, "Listen, it, what we did was we we bought a guy's story, Frank Sheeran's story, and we decided to tell the story when we bought that property." It was our story, yeah. and we turned that character into our character. And where, so he was basically he was he was you know this is the literary license dodge right. that a lot of people in the movies take. Hey, I'm this is nonfiction, but we're going to fictionalize it. And then, uh, but De Niro was always this is the true story of what happened right now. What De Niro right now he would say this is what happened, and then he was doing there was a a thing for Netflix where De Niro, Pacino. Oh, uh, I saw that. I didn't see it, but Pesci, they were all talking. Yeah, yeah, I heard about that. And and at some point, De Niro goes, "Well, there's this guy going around saying that Hoffa's body was put into a 55 gallon, <laughs> loaded on truck, and, and shipped to New Jersey, or buried in this dump. It's ridiculous. It's absolutely ridiculous." <laughs> so I'm getting ready to dance on De Niro's head. <laughs> if and when. This, no, actually, no, I'm going to be very dignified. Uh, in, fact, in fact, when you bust up a mafia thing like this, the best thing to do is probably not spike the foot. No, don't spike it. Just, the best thing to do is probably act very dignified. Yes, which just is walk away. Unlike, and, and be glad that these guys allowed me to do my work without hurting. <laughs> right. 
really? I haven't had as much as a threatening phone call <laughs> since I started this thing in September of uh, 2019. Uh, it's been amazing. Everyone's left me alone. Yeah, well, you know, most of them are dead. It's I've uh, I had to get this question all the time about you know, am I ever threatened? And and or uh, some of these other mob guys are all doing podcasts now and and public appearances yeah. and right. and they're all over the place. I'm surprised one of them hadn't jumped onto this Hoffa thing. I mean, they could they could get make some mileage out of that if they knew where he was. They, Hey, could go do a Geraldo Rivera Al Capone's vault kind of a moment. Well, see, that's, that's the other thing. You got to be careful I, about that, Dan. <laughs> no, I said, I said, right from the outset, I, I have been offered a lot of money for this. Yeah. I've said no. I said, I accept nothing. I'm accepting no money. I'm paying my own expenses and everything else. I had Fox News, which was part of this thing. They paid off, they paid a couple of hotel bills for, as they would do for any guest. Yeah. That they, put a, they paid for my hotel bill and they paid for, um, my transportation, my train from Washington to New York. Uh, I have accepted no money from anybody until the body is recovered and positively identified by the FBI as the one and only Jimmy Hoffa. At that point, then I'll start negotiating for some stuff because I have a story to tell. If this all turns out to be true, I got a story to tell that should be worth something. And all I want is the rights to my own story. With regard to the reward money that's up on this, I said the family can have all of it. The Coppola family, it's yours. I don't want any of that. All I want is the rights to my own story because I got a hell of a story to tell here as to how this all came about. This is 46 years of, of work on my part. And uh, I, I've been describing myself as Ahab and that the Hoffa case is my white whale. That is my white whale. That's a fact. That's a fact. Yeah. Gotta be careful. Well, I'm, I'm expecting to get it. I'm expecting to get it. That's right. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. Now, even even if, if, if I'm wrong, I don't think I am. But if, if somehow I'm wrong, um, you know, I don't think anyone's going to fault me. The, the evidence of this is so unbelievable it, it, everything that i've come up with for 46 years has wound up on this 12 by 15 foot perimeter in this dump uh off off dump site under a bridge in jersey city new jersey and so i'm in i'm in high confidence right now and like i said the bureau i've waited 46 years i can wait for a few more weeks few more months whatever but i believe i've got it and i believe it's going to to come and again i I feel badly that I didn't stay with Chuck. With uh, I was glad that I, I went along with Chuck, Chuck uh, Cromaldi on the CIA mafia stuff because I had other sources saying that as well. Cromaldi was the only person telling me that uh, that Hoffa's body was crushed and snorted other than this one source that I had, Ed Park, who was talking to one of the principals in the case who said that Hoffa's body was now a hubcap or a fender, which would smack in the smelting process. And so that's what I went with. I went with that in my book, and uh, and I'm hoping that I was wrong in the book because then I'll be I'll be right about what's underneath that bridge. Interesting. Well, this is uh, this has been most enlightening, Dan. I appreciate it. Uh, and all right, talk to you later. Thank you. My pleasure, Gary. Call me anytime. Well, folks, that ends another Gangland Wire episode. I just want to thank you all for listening and for all your nice Apple podcast reviews and 
other podcast app reviews and the nice comments you make on my YouTube page and, and on my Facebook and questions you ask on my Facebook pages. Now, as most of y'all know, I upload my Zoom interviews on YouTube so you can see what my guests look like in real life. And also put most of those on my Gangland Wire podcast Facebook group. And, and in regards to those Facebook groups, I've got two. One is the Facebook page, Gangland Wire Facebook page, and the other was my podcast group. And, and the group is smaller, and I, I monitor that pretty closely. So uh, get on that. Uh, I want to thank Ken Couture and several others for keeping fresh content on my Facebook page. If you want more mob information you can shake a stick at, just go to the Gangland Wire Podcast Facebook group. And remember, if you support the podcast with donations, you'll get an invite to my monthly live Zoom calls where we'll share stories, answer questions, and sometimes have guest speakers. And in general, we have a good time. A lot of guys will be sitting back in their den with a cigar and, and a drink, and, and uh, we just have a really good time on those uh, uh, monthly Zoom calls. The main method of making a donation is on my website donate page. Uh, you can use a credit card or use PayPal. But you can also buy me a cup of coffee or shot in the beer with your Venmo app or make any donation that you want to make. Uh, if you do it on Venmo, make sure you get me an email if you want to be on my Zoom call. So I, I asked for donations to help do my next documentary, and a lot of you guys really responded big time. And, and I've been able to pay people, and it's going to have a little higher production values than what I've had before. I'm getting really close to completing it. Uh, it's about Kansas City organized crime and politics. I have a title, finally. It's Boat Fraud Here Again, Politics and the Mob. And don't forget about my previous documentaries, Gangland Wire, Skimming from Las Vegas, and Brothers Against Brothers, The Savella Spiro War. Both of those can be purchased or rented on Amazon. Now, finally, the last thing I'm selling, and then I'll, I'll leave you all alone, is my book, Leaving Vegas, the true story of how FBI wiretaps ended mob domination of Las Vegas casinos. Now, that title is a mouthful. Now, if you're going to get that book, you're going to find that I used a lot of the actual wiretap transcripts from the skimming investigation. And if you get the Kindle version, I got, I got the audios from those wiretaps. And you just click on a link, and you'll go to that other website and it will allow you to listen to all those wiretaps i think that's kind of unusual so go to amazon and get that book and get it in the kindle version and if you don't have a kindle amazon has free kindle software for your tablet or your phone uh, now i'm going to let you guys go but first i want to say that gangland wire supports the veterans administration their programs that help veterans out with ptsd you can get help with their hotline 800-873-8255 and then push one. Or you can go to their website, www.ptsd.va.gov. Thanks a lot for listening, and I must credit all of our music to our good friend and Frank Costello expert, Casey McBride from Portland, Oregon. Check out Casey's Frank Costello Facebook page, Uncle Frank's Place. Thanks, Casey. <laughs>